When we look out at the night sky, you'll notice immediately it's full of stars. The darker your skies get, the more stars you're going to see. Now, when we take a census of stars, when we start looking at all the stars that are out there that we can see, surprisingly, we learn that most of them are not like our sun. Our sun is brighter and more massive than about 95% star of stars in the universe. And yet, when we look out at those extra 5%, we see that there are an enormous number of rarities. There are ultra-massive, short-lived stars. There are stars that don't even end their lives in a supernova, but rather undergo a weird pair instability mechanism and collapse. There are stars that have almost no heavy elements in them. There are all of these oddballs out there and they tell us something remarkable not only about what's possible in the universe but about the cosmic story that makes our very existence possible. What do we know about these behemoths and what are out there still to learn? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. The study of stars is arguably much older than even the science of astronomy. For as long as there have been humans, it's hard to imagine they weren't looking up at the sky and wondering what those points of light are out there. Well, we know more about them now than we do at any time throughout history. And here to help us untangle them, to separate what we know from what we don't and what we've learned from what's still yet to discover, I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Emily Levesque to the show. Emily is a professor at the University of Washington and the author of the wonderful recent book, The Last Stargazers. Emily, I'm so pleased to have you here and welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So I want to I wanna sort of ask you about the stars because the way I conceive of them is I think of them sort of as that old, uh, you know, small and red to big and blue, these sort of main sequence stars. And I think about like, okay, the overwhelming majority of these stars are these tiny, long-lived, low-luminosity red dwarfs. But over on the high mass end, you get stars that are so much bigger and more massive than our sun. And their life cycles, I would say, are much more interesting than a sun-like star like our own. Um, what What is the way that you conceive of the stars in the universe? I... I think what you just described is perfect, that when we think of most of the stars in the universe, they're mostly these little stars um, less massive than our sun. And the reason we keep mentioning mass is because mass is, you know, the key thing that dictates a star's life. And I am really interested in the oddball, very massive stars that are relatively rare, but just absolutely fascinating because at really high masses, their life cycles and their evolution is completely different. And it gives us a great glimpse at some of the weird extremes that can happen in the universe. You know, I remember it was one of my very first AAS meetings. I think it was about 2005, because uh, we're around the same age. I think I think I got a little more grays than you, but uh, we... Uh, we, I went to this talk and someone there said, okay, everyone in this auditorium, you're a star. And you got a card when you came into the auditorium. And this says, you know, if we are all stars, 
within like the closest stars to Earth, what type of star are you? And he said, okay, everyone who has an O on their card, stand up. And nobody stood up. O stars are the brightest, bluest, shortest lived stars of all. Nobody was an O star. And then he said, okay, everyone who's a B star, that's the next category, you stand up. And no one stood up because there are no close B stars to Earth. And finally, he went to the third class, A stars. Now, now those of you who are astronomers at home know, like, okay, there's got to be at least one because Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, is only A light years away and that's an A star and four people stood up four people had A star cards and there were eight people who had F star cards and then there were about 20 that had G stars those are ours those are the, that's the sun the sun's a G star and then there were maybe like 50 or so that were K stars and then the rest of the auditorium hundreds and hundreds of people stood up as M stars and that was really revealing to me as I went and learned more about it I was like wow these O and the more massive B stars these are the stars that you know go supernova these are the stars that we think are born with at least eight solar masses worth of material because like you said mass determines everything um mostly only one out of about 800 stars as far as i know that form have enough mass that they will go supernova at some point in their life and yet when we think about ourselves and our place in the universe and how we got to be here the, that 0.01% of stars, that 1 in 800 stars, wow, that's, they're really important, aren't they? It's a brilliant demo, first of all, that you describe, and it's it's something I wish, I hope we get to do more of when we're doing presentations in person. But yeah, that 1 in 800 is, I, I like to think of the mass of stars as sort of the, you know, fast-living movie stars of the stellar world because they very much follow this live fast, die young philosophy. Their lifetimes are so much shorter. Um, they're, you know, a million years with an M as opposed to the billion year with a B lifetime of a star like our sun. And they occupy a kind of outsized place in our picture of the universe. They're so much rarer, but these are the stars that go supernova. These are the stars that make black holes. These are the stars that we think of when we think of the systems that make gravitational waves. And so many of the phenomena that we just get fascinated by when we think about stars come from these one in 800 little sample of really massive stars. Yeah, no, in many ways, I, I these are the outsiders of stars where it's like, you know, these, these are the live fast, die young stars. Uh, but also that means these are the stars that are primarily responsible for enriching the universe with elements that weren't created in the Big Bang, but were rather built up in stars. That this is where this is where carbon and oxygen and iron and nickel and cobalt and most of these heavy elements, they either came from these stars directly, these really massive ones, or they come from the aftermath of these stars. Like, oh yeah, you're you're so short-lived, you live and die in just the blink of an eye in just like 0.01% of the history of the universe. And then what do you have? You have these stellar remnants. You have these neutron stars in black holes. And these neutron stars, when they collide, like that famous neutron star collision we observed in 2017, 
17, uh, these give us many of the heaviest elements in the universe. It's, you get some from sun-like stars. You get some of the heavy elements from, you know, these stars that spend a long time in their red giant phase. But overwhelmingly, the majority of these heavy elements, they come from supernovae and neutron star mergers. And those are, those are these, you know, one in 800 stars or so that ever get made. These give us the heavy elements that we find all over the Earth, solar system, and the universe that we believe are necessary for life. Yeah, I mean, this is one of people's favorite facts when we talk about stars. And you hear the quote attributed to Carl Sagan, or you hear it attributed to Joni Mitchell, that we're all star stuff. And it's fun to remember that that star stuff comes from this relatively tiny sample of stars that are rare, they're hard to spot, which makes them hard to study. But understanding them tells us so much about the literal makings of our universe, which is just fascinating. I haven't thought about that Joni Mitchell song in a long time, but I remember it and I know it from the Crosby, Stills and Nash cover. We are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon, and we've got to give ourselves back to the garden. She is singing about massive stars, and 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 I think this is this is a fascinating thing because once you start looking at these cosmic rarities, right? You start looking at these really massive stars. When you see them, you find them only in regions that pretty much are actively forming stars right now. Because the amount of time it takes to form stars is generally comparable or even longer to the lifetime of these shortest lived stars. So when I think of, okay, if you want to find these short lived massive stars, where are you going to look? Well, you could look close by at one of those lame star-forming regions, like the ones we have in the Milky Way, like the Great Nebula in Orion, or the Omega Nebula, or the Eagle Nebula, right? You have these star-forming regions here in our galaxy just a few thousand light years away, but you know, when you compare them to the star-forming regions that are out there, these are small ones. These are, you know, they're rinky-dink. When you compare them to something like uh, I'll, I'll say the Tarantula Nebula, which is in the Large Magellanic Cloud. It's a small galaxy that's less than 10% the size of the Milky Way. But the entire galaxy is having what we call a starburst. There is this enormous region in there that's, that's a significant fraction of the entire galaxy that's forming stars right now. I think it's the largest star-forming region in the entire local group, and I've heard estimates that there are something like 400,000 newly formed stars in that region, which seems nuts to me considering that most of the star-forming regions, most of the open star clusters we see in our galaxy, have only a few hundred or a few thousand stars. Can you tell us what's remarkable about uh, either the Tarantula Nebula or, as it's sometimes known, uh, 30 Doradus? Um, I work if I less even said on... that right? <laughs> I keep hearing 30 Doradus. Um, and Doradus, I'll tell you, I work okay. less on how these stars are born and more on how these stars die. But any region like that that's just sort of a machine for cranking out massive stars is interesting to us because it 
helps us learn more about how these stars are made, why they are so relatively rare when, when we look at the universe as a whole. Um, low mass stars are by far the more common. Um, it lets us explore what we call the initial mass function or the IMF, basically the rule saying if you've got a bunch of stuff and you're making stars out of it, why do you make very few massive stars and a very large number of low mass stars? So I know that people are actively studying those regions to understand the births in the early stages of these stars' lives. And then researchers like me will come in to study the evolution of these stars and then how they die and what happens to them in the late stages and end stages of their lives. And what's wonderful about this, from my perspective at least, is this is a classic example of the one astronomer's noises and other astronomer's data saying that we have because you look at the same region. When you look at the same star-forming regions, you see stars that formed right now, stars that are still in the process of forming, stars that formed one or two or 10 million years ago. So you are seeing stars at different stages of their lifetime when you look at the exact same region. So you might say, oh, I'm not interested in the ones that are forming right now. I'm interested in the ones that are evolved or evolving or in the late stages or in their death throes. Uh, and someone else is gonna look at that exact same region and say, I'm interested in gas cloud collapse and accretion and protoplanetary disks. And you're looking at the same data set extracting just completely complementary information. Yeah, and we know we're looking at different, we're looking at effectively the same type of star and just following them at different points in their lives. Um, this is a question that my students tend to ask me when I lecture about how stars are born and evolve and die. Um, because even for massive stars, we're talking about things that take millions of years. And I've had a couple students ask, you know, how do we know that stars work this way? Because we can't just stare at one for 8 million years and see what it does. So they get curious about how we understand these life cycles. And the best example I can give them is it's the same way that we understand the life cycles of people. That if you've been around for, you know, 35, 36 years and you, ha you haven't, you know, watched anybody except yourself necessarily follow every stage of the human life cycle, but you've seen babies, you've seen your grandparents, you've gotten snapshots of all the different stages of life and a massive star forming region like this gives us those same snapshots for stars. We see the newly forming stars. We see the young, very hot stars. We see the old, cold mass of stars, which I specialize in studying. And occasionally, if we're lucky, we see things like neutron stars and black holes and what happens after these stars have died. And getting all those different snapshots, um, people might specialize in different pictures, but the snapshots as a whole are sort of like, you know, the star's baby book or the star's life cycle telling us exactly what happens to them. No, and I think that's wonderful. That's a wonderful analogy because what you're basically saying is, look, Ethan, I look at you over this uh, over this uh, video chat call that we're recording, and I, I might see a 40-something-year-old person, but also I know, like, you are going to get older, your hair is going to get grayer and fall out, you're going to shrink, you're going to lose muscle mass, you're going to go through all these normal aging processes, and then you're going to die, and then the corpse of your body is going to decompose, and if you bury yourself in the ground, I can tell you how it will decompose, and at what rate, and all of these terrible things are going to happen to the shell of your once-living body. And even though we have not reached that point yet, I know all of these things are going to happen to you because this has happened to every human throughout history that's ever lived and you are no different than them. And really, that's what we're saying about stars is the differences between stars of comparable masses 
are small compared to their similarities, that we have seen enough of them at enough different snapshots of life that we can tell you the full story, the past, present, and future of pretty much any star or stellar corpse in the universe um, because we know what happens to enough of them over these various periods of time. It's the uplifting message of stellar astronomy. Everything's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's flip true. Side, everything was very cute when it was just born. No. Newborn massive stars are adorable. <laughs> they, they are. And, and one of the things that I think is fascinating about these newborn massive stars is we, we have what we call in astronomy the main sequence. We plot this on what we call either a Hertzsprung-Russell or a color magnitude diagram, where basically if you take a look at all the stars that are doing something very specific, and the specific thing is they are fusing hydrogen into helium through a chain reaction in their core. That's that's the specific thing. Our sun is doing it right now. Most stars in the universe do this for the overwhelming majority of their life cycle. This is what we call the main sequence. And the reason we plot it on a color magnitude diagram where color tells you what's the temperature of the star, how much of the light is red versus optical versus blue or ultraviolet, um, and you break it down into its spectral energy types, you can see, okay, if a star gets more and more massive, it generally gets bluer and more luminous. And you can see there's this nice straight line that it makes, this curved line, but it's a nice line that it makes um, only as soon as you start forming stars. But once you let those stars live for a little bit, the brightest, most luminous, bluest ones, they start to die, they start to evolve, they move off of the main sequence. So when we look at a star cluster that has a bunch of stars that all formed in a relatively short time, we can actually figure out how old is this star cluster based on which stars are still around compared to which stars have started evolving off of the main sequence into giants or even supergiant stars. Right, exactly. So when you say, you know, you study these most massive stars, um, do you care about them when they're still on the main sequence, or do you really only care about them once they've left the main sequence and have moved on to a future stage of life? So the main sequence sets a really important stage for these stars' lives, because like we said, their mass makes a big difference. Um, it's very good to know whether these stars might have binary companions or if they're spinning really quickly, um, what their chemical composition is, because all of these things dictate how they evolve. But I really get interested once they've left the main sequence. So once they've stopped fusing hydrogen in their cores and switched to fusing helium. At that point, we really start to see the later stages of a star's life, sort of the stages that preclude a supernova or core collapse and whatever's going to happen to the star at the end of its life. And it gives us a nice sort of hint of how the star is behaving. Um, there's a great quote from um, Kippenhahn, who was a uh, stellar, astro stellar astronomer from back in the day, describing the post-main sequence stage of stars as like a magnifying glass for stellar evolution. And his description there came from the idea that people were just starting to compute models of how stars work and predict how stars work. And their idea was, oh, you can 
predict and build a star on the main sequence, but once it leaves and once it starts evolving, if something in your prediction was wrong, if you modeled something in the star, right, this is where that error gets magnified and this is where it really jumps out at you. Oh, maybe stars work a little differently than we thought. So it's a really great stage to study because it lets us test a lot of what we understand about stars and it gives us these sort of last glimpses at the stars before they die. Well, that's, that seems really important. You know, I know of a number of things that should happen in very massive stars that could provide fascinating uh, tests of our models of them. For example, I know that during the final stages of a very massive star's life, it starts fusing very heavy elements into even heavier ones. Um, so, you know, it's not just fusing hydrogen into helium or helium into carbon or even carbon into neon oxygen going all the way up. You start saying, oh, we're going to do silicon fusion. We're going to have sulfur fusion. We're going to have these rare, short-lived reactions, um, one of the things those stars should produce is a unique energy spectrum of neutrinos. And I start wondering, you know, now that we're really entering the era of multi-messenger astronomy, where we are not only detecting light from these stars, but also cosmic particles and gravitational waves, um, could we someday start using neutrino astronomy to see which stars, maybe even stars in our galaxy, are evolving towards that supernova? Could we actually use this to predict a supernova just before it happens? Oh, I, f I find neutrino astronomy absolutely fascinating. And what's fun is that we know the term multi-messenger astronomy because we talk about detecting light and gravitational waves from the same object. Um, in this case, the famous colliding neutron stars from 2017. But if you ask the neutrino folks, they'll insist and they'll be right that multi-messenger astronomy really kicked off in 1987 because supernova 1987A was this amazing naked eye supernova that you could see in the southern hemisphere. And we detected a small handful of neutrinos from that supernova. And I, I think we literally detected eight neutrinos. It was a tiny signature, but it was enough to show us the multi-messenger sort of signature of a supernova like that. I've talked to people who model what happens in the cores of these stars in those last moments of their lives. And they've said that if a star like Betelgeuse went supernova, that we would get this absolute flood of neutrinos. We would come very near to, not quite overwhelming, but testing the capacity of our neutrino experiments scattered across the globe. And it would be a brief precursor to Betelgeuse going supernova. It would be giving us, it would be very shortly before we saw the light from the supernova, but it would be an amazing additional tool to study them. I think if we wanted to detect neutrinos in the very late stages of a star's evolution to give us, you know, maybe hours or days of warning rather than moments, we would need much more powerful neutrino detectors, but I'm sure people in that field are working on that. And normally in astronomy, all we get is light. This is why the telescopes we use are so important, that all we can use to study the universe is light. So getting neutrinos or getting gravitational waves, just any little additional tools we can, always makes a huge difference in terms of the physics that we're able to pull out of what we see. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I liken it to, uh, you know, we're used to, in astronomy, seeing things with our eyes. We're used to getting, you know, optical information, or recently we've been able to go to beyond optical wavelengths and say, oh, we're doing multi-wavelength astronomy. That's great, but it's still light. Uh, imagine if you could hear or smell or taste or touch or have some other sense that gave you feedback about the universe. That's basically what gravitational wave astronomy or neutrino astronomy add into that. It's an entirely different way of looking at it. And I also think it's kind of funny that that supernova 1987A, the, the big one, the most recent one to happen in our local group happened of all places in the Large Magellanic Cloud, in the Tarantula Nebula, in the in the exact same place where where you would have guessed. What's wonderful, though, is if uh, Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse or however you choose to say it uh, were to go supernova, because it's so close to us, uh, instead of being about 170,000 light years away, it's only a few hundred light years away. Um, that means that instead of getting with, you know, 1987 technology, a couple of handfuls of neutrinos, we would probably get millions of neutrinos from from that from that supernova. But still, it, it wouldn't be enough to like cook us or anything. It's not it's not going to interact with us in a way that is going to cause damage to us. But, you know, if our own sun went supernova, that might be a different story. But but that's not even a possibility, thankfully. Right, our sun's too low mass to ever become a supernova. Our sun has got another several billion years in it. And when our sun dies, it's gonna be a much slower and more peaceful process. Betelgeuse going supernova would be quite a party, but I actually had a lot of people ask me this in the past couple of years because Betelgeuse has been doing some pretty cool stuff, um, wondering, you know, if it went supernova, would it be dangerous for Earth? And it would not, it would just make for a very cool light show. Yeah, and that's that's also very impressive. I mean, it, it is fascinating to imagine a star in the sky, and it's one of the brightest ones. It's in the top 10, uh, even, even taking into account the recent brightness fluctuations it's undergone. Um, but it is kind of freaky to imagine, you know, oh, this star, when it does go supernova, it's going to shine more like as bright as the moon than like a star for a few months. And that that's just amazing to me that you could have a light in the sky so bright from a star or a once star that's going to shine brighter than every other star and planet in our sky combined and will actually be as bright as, you know, whatever phase of the moon happens to match up with its specific properties. That That's nuts to me. We know this from past supernovae that um, we are actually in a kind of interesting um, time point right now because our galaxy should have a star go supernova about roughly once every hundred years. And the last galactic supernova that we saw from Earth actually predated the invention of the telescope. It was in 1604, so a few years before telescopes came along. And we, so we're about 400 years since we've last seen a supernova that bright, but we know from previous records that these were easily observable with the naked eye, that you could see them during the daytime. If anybody's seen Venus sort of at dawn or something like that, it would be very similar. You'd just see a bright point so bright that it's visible even when the sun's up. And you imagine that happening to such a familiar star like Betelgeuse. It's just a fascinating possibility. 
Yeah, and in fact, these supernovae that happened uh, in pre-telescope history, um, we can find their remnants today and find like, oh, this one's 7,000 light years away, that one's 5,000 light years away. Betelgeuse is like only one-tenth of that distance. It's much closer 600, than the others. light and we, years away. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, so the way that works then is if it's only 10% of the distance, that means it's going to appear a hundred times as bright as those other supernovae did. And that's a hundred times as bright is probably enough to take you from brighter than Venus to as bright as maybe a, a half moon. Yeah. We don't we don't normally talk about brightness like that in in magnitudes, but uh, it's going to be very bright when it happens, and it is really a question of when it happens. Yes, and this is a question that so um, a lot of this got prompted because about a year and a half ago, Betelgeuse very abruptly got very dim for about a six month period. It dropped in brightness until it was about thirty five percent of its typical brightness by February of twenty twenty. And we're still studying exactly what caused that drop in brightness. But a lot of reporters were very curious and asking, you know, does this mean Betelgeuse is about to go supernova? And the answer a lot of us gave was, well, no, probably not. It's probably some other explanation dealing with just how this star evolves. But we don't know what a star looks like the day before it goes supernova or what those immediate precursor events resemble. So the possibility remains that we could see Betelgeuse go supernova. Statistically, it's unlikely. Saying a star will go supernova soon could mean we'll see it'll happen in the next 10,000, 100,000 years. So on a human time scale, it's pretty brief. Or on a human time scale, it's a pretty long time. But it's, back, a, it's still a fun, it's still a fun, you know, thought experiment to try and do. Yeah, I think, I think this is sort of a really fascinating thing when you start asking like, okay, we have never seen a star in our galaxy and said, this is a star and we've studied the star and now, boom, the star goes supernova so we see what happens. We, we've never seen that happen. And, and um, we can't do that, but, period, because supernova astronomy right now isn't predictive. We can't look at any star and say, that one's going to go supernova in a week. Or even, that's going to go supernova sometime in the next um, 500,000 years. And we don't know exactly what type of supernova it might make. We don't know if the star will just collapse into a black hole and disappear or give us the amazing fireworks show that we know is a supernova. We still don't have an, a detailed ability to predict things like this. And if, say, we all walked outside tomorrow and Betelgeuse had gone supernova, we would know more about that star's, about the star that made that supernova than we ever have about any other supernova in history anywhere in the universe. So it would be utterly fascinating, but we'd be learning a lot of new things along the way. Now, now this is kind of interesting to me because one of the things that always strikes me when we talk about our galaxy relative to the other ones is how difficult it is to actually measure what's happening in the Milky Way compared to pretty much every other galaxy because we're stuck within it. I sort of look at it as, uh, you know, if I look out at everyone else that I see, I can know what their eye color is. I can know what their eyes look like because I can see their eyes. But if I lived in a world where there were no reflective surfaces, how would I know 
what my eye color was. I would only have to rely on the observations of others. In the Milky Way, we know we cannot see most of the Milky Way because it's obscured by, well, the galactic plane, all the gas and dust and stars and other material that's in there. Um, so over the past few uh, decades, we've actually discovered a few supernova remnants that must have gone supernova since 1604 in our galaxy. Uh, so I'm not convinced that our galaxy is due for a supernova or that there have been an unusually low number of supernovae in our galaxy rather than, yeah, they've occurred just like they always do. And for the most part, they're just not occurring where it's easy for us to see them. Um, but when we look at other galaxies, we see, oh no, like galaxies like the Milky Way, they do, they get, they get, you know, a few of these per century, um, which is, you know, more frequent than what we're seeing. Yeah, and you know, in most, most galaxies we've studied, um, for the most part, if you look at the supernovae that we found, you get about one supernova per galaxy in the time that we've been observing, because we've been looking for these for about 100 years, maybe a little bit longer. And then there are the occasional outliers where there are several supernovae. There's one fascinating galaxy that I'm researching right now um, with the very catchy name of NGC 6946 that's hosted something like 10 or 11 supernovae or core collapse stars in the past century or so. And it's a really fascinating galaxy in terms of understanding, is that unusual? Is that just normal? And we caught it at an interesting time. And what can we learn from that galaxy about massive stars, about their populations, about how they die, about how many you tend to make. So even studying um, fairly distant supernovae can tell us a lot about how stars work and about how stars in our own galaxy will work. I think I'm about to get outed as a super, super nerd, but is NGC 6946, is that a galaxy that shows evidence of being an interacting galaxy? Is that a galaxy that's showing evidence that it is interacting with a, with a neighbor or has interacted recently with another galaxy? Frustratingly, it's not. And the reason this is so, the, the reason we are, we are nerding out over this idea and getting excited about it is that when two galaxies collide, it's a great way to start making new stars. You basically start smashing all the you know, molecular clouds together and kicking off a burst of new stars being formed. NGC 6946 shows no sign of that. It's a very pretty, cute, kind of normal looking spiral galaxy. So this is one of the questions that we're currently exploring is whether something prompted a blast of stellar birth, a sort of baby boom in the galaxy not too long ago, and whether we're now seeing the results of that as these stars evolve and start to go supernova. And we don't know what whether that happened or what could have caused something like that yet. That's really interesting. So when we go forward in time then a little bit, so you form stars and the most massive ones, they start to age. They they move off the main sequence, they run out of hydrogen in their core. Uh, and for those of you wondering, no, there's not convection to bring new hydrogen into the core because the star's lifetime is too short. That only happens on, you know, multi-million year, maybe even billion year time scales. So, so no, you're not going to get new fuel in there fast enough. So the core contracts and heats up and it gets hot enough that it starts fusing helium into carbon. 
And then it runs out of helium and starts fusing carbon into still heavier elements. And that kicks off a series of chain reactions, carbon fusion, neon fusion, oxygen fusion, and up and up and up until you get to iron, cobalt, and nickel in the core. Those really mark the end of the line. And that's when, for me, that's when the fun stuff really starts to happen. So so from your perspective, uh, you've got a number of possible outcomes that can occur. Uh, would you like to tell us about them in your own words? So this gets really interesting because everything that we've been describing so far has been imagining one star. And one star alone can do a bunch of cool stuff. Um, once these stars are trying to fuse iron in their cores, they tend to get into trouble because everything you just listed off up until then, so helium fusion, carbon fusion, and so on, is a way for the star to basically produce energy in its core to counteract the inward squish of gravity and keep the star balanced, keep the star in equilibrium and keep it shining at, like a star that we see in the night sky. Once it tries to fuse iron. The problem is that fusing iron takes energy. Fusing helium or carbon or anything else produces energy. So once that starts, that delicate balancing act in the star is disrupted. And then that core will collapse, we think, in less than a second. And a couple things can happen. You could have that core collapse until the neutrons that were formerly bound up in the core's atoms are squeezed together so tightly that they are at risk of violating um, a degeneracy principle. So a principle of quantum physics that prevents neutrons from being squeezed too closely together. And at that point, the collapse actually halts and we've made what we call a neutron star. So this gives us the weird compact object and neutron stars that we study today. And it also means that the rest of the star sort of tumbling down after the core as it collapses will bounce off of the surface of the neutron star or the sort of halted collapse shock wave that has been caused by that collapsing core. And when that bounce happens, we get what we see as a supernova. So this is a sort of classically imagined supernova. That neutron star might only pause there for a brief second and then continue to make a black hole, or it could stay as a neutron star for a very long time. But either way, we get a collapsed core and a big supernova. There's another type of collapse that can basically send that core collapsing directly into a black hole. And we're still not quite sure what that looks like, but we think it could result in the star effectively just disappearing, just winking out of existence. The whole star just goes into a black hole. We've actually seen what we think might be a couple examples of this happening. In fact, one of them was in that galaxy, NGC 6946. Some observers saw a red supergiant that appeared to just disappear over the course of a few observations. And we never saw a supernova associated with it. The suspicion is that it might have collapsed into a black hole. And from our perspective, it just looks like the star winking out. So already we've got a couple cool things that massive stars can do when they die. And this gets even cooler when you imagine massive stars that might have binary companions. So another star gravitationally bound to them and orbiting together, because this can really start to mess with how a star sort of physically evolves and how it might end its life. 
Yeah, and I think that's that's a really important point because you you brought up three scenarios that happen just when you have a star by itself, where basically it can it can either burn through its fuel until its core collapses, you wind up with a ball of neutrons because it'll collapse all the way down to that, but then you have the Pauli exclusion principle, this quantum rule that says you can't put two identical fermions, specific type of quantum particle, and a neutron is one of them, in the same space in the same quantum state. So the fact that you can't get them all in there means there's going to it's going to sort of peak at some finite density. You can't get any denser than that. And if that's enough to hold you up against gravitational collapse, you you don't go any further than that. And that's why we see neutron stars up to a little more than 2 solar masses, but none heavier than about 2.2 right now maybe that'll go up to 2.5 or so um but uh and then we have black holes right beyond that right we see black holes and black holes exist in masses of about three solar masses and above again none smaller than the ones that are allowed to overlap with neutron stars i'm familiar with some of these observations of we saw a star we know from its spectrum that it was a bright, massive O or B type star originally that's evolved. Um, and then you look at it and you're like, oh crap, it just disappeared. It just disappeared and there's no uh, gas around it. There's no warm dust around it. There's no, there's no evidence of an explosion or a remnant or a high energy event. It's just gone. So it seems like you can get a supernova that makes a neutron star, a supernova that makes a black hole. We also know you can get a supernova where just everything is torn apart and you get nothing. Um, but you can also get... Yeah, and you can get a direct collapse black hole as well. But then you start adding another star into the mix. You add a binary or another multi-star system around it, and now these stars can start to interact, and they do awful mean things to one another. Like, ah, I'm denser than you. I'm going to steal some mass off your outer layers, and I can, uh, I can alter your life cycle if you're a massive star, and you're like, I'm going to go supernova. I'm, I'm burning. I'm burning all my stuff. I'm burning the neon. I'm burning the silicon. I'm, I'm going to get there. And I'm like, no, I'm stealing your mass. And you're like, you, what did you do? And I'm like, I gave you a supernova abortion. I just took your mass away, and I stopped you from going supernova. So don't we actually expect that there should be these weird white dwarfs out there that aren't made of carbon and oxygen like our sun will become? But shouldn't there be like heavy element white dwarfs that were just, they were gonna go supernova, but a companion star stole their mass away? So it's really hard to predict what will happen to a massive star once we put it in a binary system, and especially once we get that binary interacting. Because you could, for example, steal the outer layers of a massive star, but the core might not care for a little while. The core might still happily churn through heavier and heavier elements and then make a neutron star or a black hole. Eventually, though, if you steal too much mass, it could really disrupt what happens to this star. We also think a lot about stars sort of sucking mass off of each other, and 
it's a, you, anybody who has looked at sort of pictures or illustrations of black holes has probably seen some version of this where you see a star that's sort of shaped like a teardrop and there's mass getting dragged into a black hole. But in truth, what happens is it's sort of the um, star's fault for violating the black hole's personal space, that it's overflowed what we call its Roche lobe and gotten too close gravitationally to that companion. So then they just sort of start swapping mass. And this can get really, really weird if the two stars eventually merge, if say a star winds up swallowing its companion, and then they will actually start sharing atmospheres. Um, if a big red star swallows something like a neutron star, you can make really weird stars where they effectively are two stars, sort of a Russian nesting doll star where the two stars are a hybrid version of themselves. And all of this is stuff that we're still just beginning to understand. Yeah, I believe that's, is that a Thorn-Zitko object? Is that is that what it's called? Yeah, so a Thorn-Zitko object a... is what happens if you have a red supergiant and a red neutron star in a binary that eventually merge. I wonder if it's possible to get a red supergiant or some other type of massive star and a black hole merge uh, without the black hole just totally devouring the star um or or now would would the black hole need to devour the star or is that something that again we don't know would you be more likely to get an enormous tidal disruption of the star we don't entirely know you you would probably get some very serious disruption if the two if those two objects are merging but an interesting thing about thorn jitkov objects is these were predicted by kip thorn and anna jitkov back in the 1970s and they were predicted not imagining sort of how they were made but just imagining whether they would work and they figured out mathematically that you could have a star that outwardly looks totally normal just looks like a red supergiant looks like betelgeuse but has a core that is a neutron star the new neutron degeneracy and the quantum physics supporting that neutron star would actually be enough to support the entire star and support that big puffy cold envelope. So what this means is that you could say magic a star into existence that has a black hole for a core. And in this sort of very funky stellar model, that star might survive. I think making one is a lot harder. And again, we still don't know a lot about how binary massive stars are formed, how many there are, how often they interact, what they make once they do interact. So it's really an active area of study, just trying to predict how systems like this might work. Well, that's that's really fascinating. I was wondering, um, you know, since these were predicted in the 1970s, I have heard reports of people saying like, ooh, we've identified a signature on this red supergiant that we think indicates it might be a Thorn-Zitkov object, or that we think that maybe one in 10,000 of the red supergiants that we see are actually these uh, objects that have a neutron star at their core. But then I've also seen reports come out that dispute everything that those that those positive assertions uh, report. Can you can you sort of bring me up to date and tell me like what the status of that is? Do we have candidate thorns at cob objects? Do we have confirmed thorns at cob objects? Do we still not know how to tell these apart from red supergiants very robustly? Yeah, I can definitely give an update on this because my colleagues and I were the ones that discovered our best candidate for a Thorn-Jitkov object about seven years ago. And we think that we still right now have a very strong candidate 
for proving that Thornjit Gov objects can exist. But like you said, we identified it kind of based on indirect evidence. Um, we identified weird chemical signatures in the outer layers of these stars that we don't think you could produce in a normal red supergiant. We observed excesses of really funky elements like rubidium or molybdenum that are very hard to make in a regular red supergiant, but should get made if you plunk a neutron star at the heart of a red supergiant and see what that does to the chemistry of the star's layers. So, so far, our candidate has stood up to various tests and scrutiny saying, well, maybe the candidate is just a smaller, maybe it's a smaller star than we think it is that's been polluted by a companion. Or maybe the the um, element enhancements don't quite match up with we what we predicted or could be explained by something else. So far, it stood up to those tests as the best possible candidate, but thinking a neutron star is in there and proving a neutron star is in there are two very different things. And we're still currently researching how to find sort of real proof that this star or other stars like it have neutron stars for cores rather than normal cores. And we've talked about things like the gravitational waves that might come from a neutron star churning away inside a red supergiant. We've looked at other potential signatures of how a Thorn-Jitgov object might form when that neutron star was born or then when the two stars collide. Um, this is actually a topic covered at the AAS summer meeting. Um, there's a whole special session featuring current research on Thorn-Jitgov objects that I get to host as a speaker at the meeting. So it's a really interesting and active topic. Well, this, uh, this podcast won't come out until after the meeting's taken place, but I'll be there next week. So maybe, maybe if we're lucky, uh, you know, someone will twist my arm and get me to write an article about what goes on at that special session. So, uh, you know, I'll just have to put that on my calendar. Gov coming to speak. So that should be pretty cool. <laughs> Well, that that should be pretty cool, and also maybe that'll give me a chance to actually learn how Anna Zhitkov pronounces her last name herself, because uh, I clearly botched that earlier in the podcast. So, ironically, Anna and I have never met in person. We worked together on our discovery of what we think is the best candidate, but we've only ever emailed. We've never gotten the chance to speak on the phone or meet in person. And I had her do a heroic job of spelling out how to pronounce her name so that I hopefully wouldn't butcher it in interviews like this. But yes, it'll be great to finally speak to her sort of in person over Zoom. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm optimistic that with things uh, changing the way they're changing in the world, perhaps the next AAS meeting actually will get to be in person. We'll uh, we'll have to wait and see on that one. Yeah. Um, so this is this is maybe a nice place to switch gears a little bit, because in addition to your professional career where you are studying these massive stars and these rare stars um, and these stars that have arisen from these binary systems, uh, you've also been very interested in the story behind the people that work on the largest telescopes that take these observations. And, and your book, The Last Stargazers, has really, I think, been a very important book in terms of humanizing a science that people think of more in terms of the instruments and their capabilities and what we learn from the science than we do of the people behind those stories. Yeah, that, what? that was one of the primary goals of the book. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> no, no, you keep going. You keep going. Uh, if that was the one of the primary goals of the book, uh, you have to be pretty proud with uh, with the reception it's gotten and, and how you did with that. Because I think, 
I think that's something that, you know, a lot of people really appreciate the science of astronomy and they hear about things like the Hubble Space Telescope or the Keck telescopes and they don't hear about the people behind the telescopes, the people who built them, the people who operate them, the people who use them, the people who maintain them. There's there's a whole, you know, veritable army of people who make these things go. Yeah, and this was this was the argument that I remember making back when I was getting the book published, that everybody loves space. It's really not hard to sell people on, you know, the beautiful photos that Hubble takes. I mean, people have these as their desktop backgrounds and their phone case designs. Like, the pictures of space and the stories of, you know, how a black hole works really fascinate everybody. But there's this whole cast of human characters behind the scenes that, like you said, build the telescopes, maintain the telescopes, really go to literally the ends of the Earth to get these images and then pull science out of them. And I really wanted to tell those stories. It gives people this great behind the scenes reel sort of of how astronomy works. And I think putting a human face on science is especially important right now across the board. It's a time when we really want to understand what makes scientists tick and trust scientists and understand the human motivations behind the research that we do. And I think astronomy in particular can seem kind of remote and esoteric. So showing people what the human experience of being an astronomer is like really makes astronomy feel more accessible. I know that for me too, especially when I was growing up as a kid interested in science, I was so curious about what scientists actually did all day and what my job as an astronomer one day would actually be like. So it gives people that sort of window into understanding a little bit about how we work, what makes us tick. You know, I think I think that's a very important point that I I didn't really even start to appreciate until I was in graduate school already that um, a lot of us who get interested in astronomy or astrophysics, um, there's something driving us, motivating us, some goal we want to achieve, something we want to know, something we want to understand, something that doesn't make as good sense to us as we would like that we would like to make better sense to us and normally I, I me maybe not normally but frequently that's the motivator for why we're interested in this why we're interested in astronomy astrophysics physics whatever it is that drives us but there's a whole different aspect that i don't think gets discussed in the same breath very frequently and that is what do you do every day what do you do with your day-to-day -day labor when you go in to work and you get your work to work, what do you do all day? Do you sit around writing grants and sending emails to colleagues? And is that is that all it is all day? Well, I, I hope not. But also, um, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize if you want to have a successful life and a successful career in whatever it is you do, it's not enough to just look at what is that big big goal that I'm walking, working towards, what are the day-to-day -day hurdles that I'm facing? Do I enjoy my work and my life as I'm doing it? And, uh, you know, for you, I can see this reaction on your face. I could see the answer for you is yes. Oh my God. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, but it isn't for everyone. And I think a lot of people get a sort of rude awakening when they get exposed to the reality of that second part. So I'm I'm all for more transparency in what it means to be a scientist, but I'm also for more trust 
in the people who are on the frontiers of science because, man, I have never met a group of people more excited about knocking a new hypothesis down than scientists. And so, I mean, the stories of what we do from day to day were what prompted the idea for the book. And in part, it came from the fact that our jobs are really kind of absurd. I mean, we travel out to telescopes in the middle of nowhere. We deal with all sorts of wacky little ground-based problems that you wouldn't imagine coming up when you think about somebody observing galaxies billions of light years away. I talk to astronomers who, you know, deal with infestations of ladybugs at telescopes or who are at telescopes when an earthquake hits and sort of jostles everything apart and you have to take a few nights to fix everything. And these sorts of little challenges are just the tales that we tell each other um, when we're all sort of sitting around at a conference and talking about what it's like to work at a telescope. But as part of gathering those tales, I interviewed more than a hundred of my fellow astronomers for the book. And I mostly just let them talk and tell stories. People love just getting into sort of storytelling and sort of tall tales. And I wanted to get as much of that into the book as I could. But I did ask them, what do you think is the biggest disconnect between what people think astronomers do and what we actually do? And people had some really interesting answers. And they ranged from, you know, as professionals, we tend to not look through eyepieces. We have very complicated and expensive cameras and instruments that we'll put on the backs of telescopes. So sometimes the answer was that. And sometimes it did go to, you know, we don't just sit around waiting for a discovery and then say, hey, we've solved the mysteries of the universe. There's a lot of science and a lot of scrutiny that goes into all of the work that we do. And making astronomy sort of a collaborative effort and an effort where we're constantly sort of testing each other's ideas and exploring new ideas or exploring alternative explanations is a massively key part of astronomy and of science as a whole. And I think making sure that people understand that along with understanding some of the wacky stories of what goes on at a telescope is definitely one of the goals of the book. I mean, there there's definite wackiness. We, we all heard stories. I think my favorite secondhand story I ever heard was uh, there was one night at a telescope uh, where Fritz Zwicky was, where um, the turbulence in the atmosphere was so bad that he couldn't get like any good imagery, right? That's, that's just something that happens, right? The air is thermal, it's turbulent, and everything's swizzling around, and you can't see anything. So he went and got out a rifle and he put the rifle through the telescope tube and shot it in the direction it was pointing so that it would move the air out of the way and make it be less turbulent. It did not work. It did not improve the seeing at all, but it didn't damage the telescope, and I think it's a very... Uh, clear example you can point to to show just how bonkers astronomers can be when it comes to I'm going to try and make this thing work even though it's not working uh, we still don't really know how to fight turbulence adaptive optics is good but even that is limited I mean Fritz Zwicky is something of an infamous um, personality in astronomy but yeah I, I specifically asked people for the secondhand stories and the stories that they weren't sure were true. That one is true. He got in a little bit of trouble for, you know, firing bullets out of a telescope. But um, an another one that I learned secondhand and eventually was able to get verified was a very similar story of an astronomer sitting at a telescope and dealing with this turbulence in the atmosphere. And anybody who's ever seen the air sort of rising up off hot pavement 
moment knows what we're dealing with when you talk about seeing because you see that sort of temperature differential and the turbulence of the air blurring and messing with what you're seeing and this particular astronomer was observing and the seeing was okay and then it started getting worse and worse and worse to a dramatic extent and he started thinking you know something seems like it might be wrong and he wandered out of the telescope's control room and realized that a wall of the telescope was on fire glycol had started dripping i think down the inside of the wall which is flammable it had caught fire and just a wall of the building was in flames oh my he god grabbed he grabbed a fire extinguisher put it out and then when was from his perspective i think he was like well i solved the scene problem i'm gonna go back and observe and at this point other people had been alerted and he was informed you know maybe you need to stop maybe the building catching fire means the rest of the night is a wash and he had kind of had to get it explained to him it's like no, it, I fixed the problem. The observing conditions are fine. And there's there's so many variants of sort of weird stories like that in the book. And it did sort of become a collection of some of the best tales in astronomy, but framed alongside understanding what we do, understanding our jobs, and understanding what it's really like to work in this field. Yeah, and and then you have like sort of this this flip side of that where okay yes you have astronomers and they do these super weird things and and of course they do because you know you encounter unique problems in astronomy that you don't encounter anywhere else and you know part of that is creative problem solving uh but beyond that i think you also have this um hey what do what do astronomers actually do like and i think one of the underappreciated advances that have been made in astronomy over the last few decades especially is uh, astronomers from a variety of different subfields have all started to share knowledge in a way that they haven't before and one of the things that has dramatically decreased in astronomy is what I would say are our uncertainties are our error bars are our systematic errors we we all of a sudden seem to be much better at understanding why certain things aren't exactly as they might naively appear. And I think we've gotten a lot better at understanding the physics behind what's going on in these various objects. Now, there are always going to be people who disagree with that and think we're fooling ourselves and we do not understand things as well as we think we do. But but having watched various fields all converge on the same answer to questions that they answer in very different ways, that's really an indication indicator to me that it's not proof we're doing things right, but it's a strong indicator that we're doing pretty good. We're, we're getting answers that are self-consistent and consistent with one another's answers. There, there really aren't very many things where, you know, you go and measure something and you're like, it's 100, and I go and measure something and I'm like, no, it's 50, and we're using the same observations. Um, that's that's not happening anymore. We, we might get small, small differences, like the dark energy survey just made headlines getting a very small difference, which I believe is at like 2.5 sigma significance. So, you know, it's if, if you were to ask me to bet a grad student's career on it, I would tell you only if I don't like them. I, you know, it's not the sort of thing that you would you would really do um but 
but I think that's been a real enormous advance in the field is that, you know, we would observe things and, you know, the joke about astronomy is that the errors, the uncertainties would be in the exponent. And now I think we've really, truly entered the era of precision astronomy, where we are measuring things and we're confident in what we're measuring to some very robust level of accuracy. Um, do do other people feel the same way? Or is that something that's so obvious we all take it for granted now? It's funny because I think most, for the most part, when I ask people how the field was changing and how it was evolving, they touched on that aspect of, you know, increased precision, but they tended to point to just the volumes of data that we're getting. That part of the reason our error bars are shrinking is because we're going from having a sample of 200 to a sample of 2 million. And everybody's answer sort of depended on what field they were in. Some people would talk about dark energy and the Hubble constant, but it was this general recognition of just the scale on which astronomy is done is really, really starting to change. And alongside that comes with a change in how astronomers do our jobs, that instead of going to a telescope and working at it all night and pointing at, at a list of individual stars, we might have a survey telescope that detects millions of new things over the course of several years that we can then sort of work with remotely. So it was an interesting look at how the precision and the sample size of the field is changing alongside how our jobs actually function a little differently because of the way we get that data. So one of the things I wanna ask you, if you could uh, do me a, a slight favor and put on your curmudgeon hat for a second. Uh, I do want to ask you if you feel or if you've gotten the impression from astronomers that as we've moved towards more automated surveys, larger surveys, data that you know is so massive and volumetric that we can't handle it with traditional you know human-based interventions anymore uh, is there something important that's being lost or is this just like an old person's like curmudgeonly attitude saying like oh it was so much more romantic when you know you would look through a telescope with your eyes and you would sketch it out sketch out the galaxy that you hear and it would be so romantic and i miss that now that i have the spectra of a billion stars in the galaxy like it's <laughs> <laughs> a, a great question and i i absolutely have a curmudgeon hat to put on but there's this is also a disclaimer that i put in the book um, there is most certainly something being lost if we were to only go to big survey astronomy. And fortunately, we're not doing that. But there is an interesting point that a lot of people made when I interviewed them saying, you know, I learned how to observe by going to a telescope and spending all night figuring out what worked and didn't work. And when you don't have to do that again, there's a worry that we might not have as many new astronomers who know how these telescopes work down to the nitty gritty. And astronomers are the people who conceive of new instruments, who build new instruments, who think about how to make telescopes work better and knowing how they work is a really key step. Uh, that said, I talked to a lot of people who had been observing for um, decades. Um, I interviewed colleagues who had observed for decades with glass plates before we had gotten oh, wow. into the era of cameras. And all of them, especially people who had done sort of glass plate observing or had observed back when you literally sort of sat out shivering at the telescope all night, 
all of their favorite memories were of that sort of observing and just the romance of, you know, running a camera by hand and literally being tied to the telescope and having the night sky spin above you. Everybody adored those memories and loved telling me those stories. Not a soul wants to go back to that era because they know that moving to digital observing and moving to more efficient observing gives us so much more science. So those were wonderful memories, but we didn't have, a, I didn't have a bunch of Luddite interviewees saying, no, we want to go back to the way it was. I think the balance was that people really love what the new technology can offer us, but they want to make sure that we still have the full complement of tools available to us. Um, I had an interviewee compare this to getting a new KitchenAid for your kitchen and then throwing away all your other tools. Now, KitchenAids are amazing and you can do wonderful baking with them, but you also need a spatula and a good old fashioned bowl and a good set of knives and all the other tools that make a kitchen work well. And if we were to move to only a handful of survey telescopes, there's a lot of astronomy we would miss. On the flip side, getting new survey telescopes is going to give us just this wealth of new science that we can use and that we can study with the variety of different tools that we have available to us. So telescopes at different wavelengths, little telescopes, big telescopes, telescopes that are run by robots and telescopes that are run by people. We really need the full mix. And that was the main impression that I got in the from interviewing people and then writing about this in The Last Stargazers is the change in technology is changing the way we do our jobs, but it shouldn't necessarily mean the end of an era. It should mean an evolution in how we do the kind of research that we do. Yeah, I, I sort of try to look at it as the survey telescope is like the scout. The scout goes out and sees what's out there and then reports back to the general. And then the general sends the army or the battalion or the drone strike at the real target. And that's sort of what we're what we why we need this complementary approach because the survey telescope is never going to be as powerful as the dedicated telescope that's optimized for observing the single target um you know there's always a trade-off between okay uh if i want my stuff to be wide field then am i sacrificing depth for a wider field. If I want something to be, you know, spectroscopic, if I want to break everything up into individual wavelengths, do I need to spend a longer amount of time observing this one target? And does that take away from how much I can observe the other targets? So it's like, you know, you go and you look out with your survey telescope and you identify what are the things that I need to go take a closer look at to learn more about whatever problems I'm interested in learning more about. And then you go and do it with those, you know, specialized tools that are that are more powerful that, you know, that maybe will be the 30 meter class telescopes on the ground that will have the infrared wavelength bands that I'm interested in looking at that, you know, etc. Yeah, exactly. So um, this is this is kind of asking you to speculate then, but when you take a look at where the field is headed, right, you see where it was, you see where it is today and how it got to be here. Um, what do you see as the future of astronomy? How do you see astronomy continuing to change, both in terms of the instruments that are going to be coming online and also in terms of what people who do astronomy actually do with their time? 
I mean, I think we've got some amazing instruments coming online in the next decade. Um, we've got the launch of new space telescopes. We've got enormous new ground-based telescopes being built. We've got amazing survey capacity that's going to be coming online. Um, I'm at the University of Washington, and we're one of the key partners in Rubin Observatory, which is basically going to be making a decade-long movie of the southern sky. So just the wealth of observations we have is going to be incredible. Um, I really hope that we can see continued support and increased support for astronomy just in terms of funding, because that's how we keep current and future observatories maintained. That in addition to these sort of big, enormous flagship new observatories, that we're able to also have little telescopes that can be pointed at a star like Betelgeuse that's so bright you can see it with the naked eye, or telescopes with more specialized equipment that can give us things like looks at the polarized light coming from stars. So I'd really like to see continued investment in and support for astronomical research because the more tools we have available, the more we can learn. In terms of people's jobs, I think that we've already seen such a move toward astronomy really featuring um, a lot of computer science as we get huge volumes of data, understanding how to deal with big data sets, understanding how to use machine learning in a way that really helps us pull out the physics and understand what we're looking at. All of this is going to continue to be really important. And then alongside that, I really hope that we have, you know, generations of astronomers who are really enthusiastic about dealing with the theoretical physics of it all and getting their hands into the telescopes that they're dealing with and really becoming experts in the computer science. I mean, we need the same diverse mix of people and of abilities that we do in our instruments. Um, astronomy is a very popular field for um, undergraduate majors. Um, we have the biggest astronomy undergrad major in the country at UW, and we've got a lot of excited students who would each love to contribute their own cool thing to the field. And I know that's true of so many other departments. And really hoping that we have the space and support for all of these folks is really what I would like to see happen in astronomy. I, I'd love I mean, to see I, our field just balloon and get to do so much. There's a lot of universe out there. We could get a lot more people involved and still only scratch the surface. I mean, that's wonderful. You you have, over the time since I've known you, been such a uh, such a good ambassador for astronomy to, you know, just a wide variety of people. Um, before we wrap this up, I'd like to ask you, um, you have been uh, very open about sharing your eternal love of science, space, and astronomy that has been with you since you were very young. Um, if you could say something to the 10-year-old version of Emily, to, the, to the, the little girl Emily out there who loves this stuff but really doesn't know very much about it, just knows that she's in awe of it and, and finds it wondrous. Um, what would you say to her and what, what would you say to all the other young people out there who maybe have ambitions about studying the universe and figuring out these great cosmic answers for themselves? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I think 10-year-old me would just be super excited to find out that 36-year-old me actually is an astronomer and actually did get to have <laughs> this job. Um, and I think, I think a good thing that I would want to say to her is it's going to be both tougher and more fun than you could have imagined. 
and there are times, and, and this is true of any job, but there are absolutely days that are utterly frustrating where you just fantasize about doing anything a little quieter and easier. And then there's days where you just wouldn't give up the job for the world. And knowing that the tough parts are worth it and that the, um, that the cool parts are coming would be really, really great. Um, I would almost want to go back, not necessarily to, you know, just 10 year old me, but to 18 year old me absolutely grappling through my freshman year at MIT, uh, where I was behind so many of my classmates and just fighting to catch up and saying, nope, it's going to be worth it. Stay like, hang in there, work really hard. It does wind up paying off. You'll be glad you did it. Or even to the version of me that was um, applying for jobs and trying to stay in the field and saying, the other side of the, there, there is another side to this. Um, I also know that I'm somebody who did manage to get into that position and that it's a very challenging field and a lot of people are dealing with a lot of setbacks and a lot of um, difficulties that um, can may, maybe make it not worth it and maybe make it too tough. And the advice that I always give to students who are thinking about going into the field is to really pay attention to what you love about it. Do you love the idea of solving a puzzle? Do you love the mysteries of the universe? Do you love getting other people excited about the universe? Because that may make the difference of going into a world of data science where you get to solve puzzles in so many different fields, not just astronomy, or whether you love to teach or whether you love to do research. And depending on their answer, that can hopefully help direct them toward an area where they can sort of channel their love of science or the universe or solving puzzles or teaching people in a field that's a good fit for them. And I think that's good advice at any career stage. I think especially for young people deciding what they want to do and how they want to involve science in their lives and their careers. It's a good sort of mental check-in and a good question to keep in mind. Yeah, and I think that's probably good advice for people at all different stages of their lives because, you know, what what works for you today may not work for you five or ten years from now, and what worked for you five or ten years ago may not be working for you today. And I don't think that you should feel compelled that, well, I've come this far down this path, I might as well follow it all the way to the end. Sometimes that's not the right decision for everyone, and I'm very pleased to hear that... Um, that that was a part of your answer and your consideration to people is that they need to think about what they themselves are and value and why they're here and how they got to be here and what's next for them as individuals. I think I think that's excellent advice. It's it's certainly right, well, oh, been helpful for me. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it so much. Emily, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It was a delight to have you on. Thank you for all the education about stars and the weird things that can ensue, especially when they are massive and in binary systems. And also thank you for a wonderful overview of your book, The Last Stargazers, which is out and available for purchase everywhere. There'll be a link in the show notes to it. And, uh, other than that, I'd just like to say thank you to everyone who makes the Starts with a Bang Starts with a Bang podcast possible. This podcast only comes to us thanks to the generous donation of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go out to Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Matt Conroe, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Chris Chikutas, Chris Shaw, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balagulian, Pavel Zuzewski, 
Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Stefan Bernegger, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jens Kroger, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Mark Armstrong, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Teixeira, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Sean Foley, Vlad Pashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andre Chovanek, Andrew Jason, Arnulfo Zepeda, Benhead, Bob Unger, Brainwise, Carl Iddings, Chris Hilly, Christoph Hip, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, Darren Redfern, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, Hannah Khan, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Mike, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Serzakian, Steve Shaber, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Blair, William Vanden Heuvel, and Yanko S. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Starts With a Bang.